Hello, welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, now recorded in socially distanced form from the comfort of our homes to yours. We offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Trevor Thrall. And I'm Emma Ashford. Let us start by extending our hope that everyone listening is safe, healthy, and coping with the crisis. Our thoughts are with those who are struggling and with the medical professionals who are on the front lines. Indeed, the pandemic now dominates our thoughts, and it certainly dominates the news. As someone who writes about current affairs for a living, I cannot remember a time when the news was so focused on a single topic. Nor does it look like we're going to be able to stop talking about the pandemic even once it has subsided. The scale and scope of its impact are shaping up to be truly immense. And though most Americans are understandably focused on their governors right now, eventually we will wake up to realize that the pandemic has had important effects on national security and international affairs. Though it's too early to predict exactly what the outcomes will be, it seems clear that the pandemic could have big impacts on the future of free trade, the spread of autocracy, the liberal order and international governance, not to mention on the very definition of national security. Joining us today to help think all this through is Greg Koblenz, Associate Professor at the Shar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, where he is also the Director of the Graduate Program in Biodefense. Greg, thanks so much for joining us on Power Problems. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. All right, let's start um, closer to home and then work our way out. Uh, most Americans, I think, at least you know, before the crisis hit, um, didn't associate pandemics with national security in any real sense. Um, seems like a health thing, not a security thing. Do you think that's shifting now? And um, is public health going to get more securitized in the wake of the coronavirus? I think you're right that people have traditionally associated with pandemics with public health and not national security. But for the last couple of decades, there's actually been a group of experts inside and outside of the government that have argued that naturally occurring infectious diseases can pose security risks. And this has been a bipartisan uh, endeavor stretching back to the um, Clinton administration through Bush and, uh, and the Obama administration. But this never really caught on with the mainstream national security community, which prefers dealing with great powers rather than microscopic enemies. Um, hopefully that's shifting now. The USS Roosevelt um, episode should be a wake-up call to the Pentagon. Um, since this is the first time an aircraft carrier has been taken out of service by enemy action since World War II, of course, this time it was a virus and not a nation state. Um, but it showed that diseases and pandemics can have real and direct impact on traditional national security concerns. But you're, you're right that one of the risks is that public health will become militarized or securitized. Um, and I don't think this is yet another mission area we need to add on to the Department of Defense. Uh, instead, what I want to see is that the government take infectious diseases and pandemics as seriously as we take nuclear proliferation, terrorism, and other traditional national security concerns in terms of political attention and resources, but not in a way that makes us purely the domain of the military or the national security community. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, honestly, I just wanted to sort of take a little aside here um, because I, I find it absolutely fascinating how bad the response of the Department of Defense has been on this. We, we saw this crisis, as you mentioned, on the, the USS Theodore Roosevelt, um, where the captain wrote a letter to his superiors that said, um, you know, everybody on the ship is going to get sick. It's a real problem. Um, ended up getting fired from his command from it. It, it turned into a scandal. Um, 
But I have to wonder, I mean, the, the military, the Navy must be used to dealing with diseases in close quarters in this kind of ship. Do you have any idea why they just reacted so badly in, in this situation? So one of the, the one of the aspects of this that um, I think we're going to learn more about is the fact that there were cases detected on the Roosevelt as early as they were was uh, because the Navy was being proactive. Because these, these ships don't normally carry diagnostic kits to be able to, to test soldiers for you know every disease under the sun, especially you know a, a, a novel um, coronavirus. Uh, so the Navy was being proactive um, in terms of uh, getting those assets out to the out to the ships. Uh, and I think the response by Captain Crozier, the commander of the ship, was the right one uh, to recognize that there was no way to contain the disease on his carrier and, and keep it fully operational. Um, I think the failure really was at the, the leadership level with the, the acting secretary uh, in the way that episode was handled. But it seems that more at the operational level, uh, I think the Navy was um, did the best it could, given this was a kind of unprecedented situation um, with this this novel coronavirus. But there is a, I believe there's an investigation underway by the Navy and um, looking forward to seeing what the results are from that, uh, from that inquiry. And that story is still playing out. It's, uh, we saw that the, the first sailor died uh, who, who caught the virus on the ship and, uh, and recriminations all around. So that's going to be fascinating to watch. Um, all right. So moving out a little bit, uh, most of the global health literature, and Greg, you've turned me on to most of this, um, seems to suggest that democracies are better prepared to combat pandemics than autocratic societies. And I'm going to misremember the name of the fairly recent report that came out assessing uh, every country's kind of preparedness to handle a pandemic. And as, if I recall, the United States was ranked number one on that list. And it sort of calls that into question. Um, but, you know, it, China's gotten a lot of um, uh, sort of kudos, if you will, for, for kind of draconian actions. Um, and so there's a question, are democracies really better than uh, you know, autocracies at combating uh, pandemics. And then second, um, you know, a lot of countries, the United States included, but, you know, most obviously Hungary, have leaned towards anti-democratic tools to create enhanced, uh, you know, capabilities to fight pandemics. Um, do, do you see the pandemic having a kind of a long-term impact on the spread of autocracy? Well, I think what the pandemic is showing is that these, um, the bigger the disease outbreak, the more politicized it gets. And we're seeing that, you know, both domestically and internationally. And the, um, you know, the, the early, um, early, overly optimistic uh, commentators who, who looked at what's happening in China uh, as a sign of, of how autocracies can't handle um, outbreaks and kind of looking at Japan and South Korea in contrast and, and the jobs they were doing. Um, you know, I think those analyses have not uh, not done well over time since you know, once the the coronavirus hit Europe, hit the United States. Uh, it you know clearly showed that even uh, liberal democracies are not very well equipped for dealing with with these outbreaks. Um, so there is this kind of debate about what I call the the democratic health theory, right? Which is a variant of the democratic peace theory and other IR theories that. Uh, try and explain why democracies are better at uh, creating alliances, you know, fighting wars. Um, and this is an empirical question that I'm sure there are some dissertations that will be written about this, but this is still kind of, uh, I think, a question that's up for debate about either how good are democracies versus autocracies doing this, or what is what are the fundamental attributes of a government that makes it better able to handle these outbreaks? And it might have nothing to do with the regime type. There might be other factors 
involved. And I, I think that, that that'll be a fascinating question to, to try and figure out down the road. Um, but we've, we've also seen uh, the case where leaders in a range of countries, even liberal democracies, have exploited this health crisis to consolidate their hold on power, right? We saw uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu in Israel shut down the courts you know, on the eve of, of his corruption trial. Uh, we saw Viktor Orban in Hungary seize you know, almost dictatorial powers uh, in that country. Um, and so that's um, a, a definitely a grave cause for concern as the longer this pandemic goes on, I think it'll be harder to reverse those autocratic tendencies um, uh, in, in those countries and, and frankly, in ours as well. So um, there's, there's a lot of concern that the, the balance we've struck between um, public health and surveillance and quarantine and some of those more kind of intrusive police powers that public health authorities are, are wielding to deal with this outbreak, to what extent do these become uh, institutionalized uh, and permanent features of our society uh, versus kind of temporary expedient measures they're dealing with just for the, the pandemic? I think it's sort of fascinating and, and extremely disturbing that people are suggesting, even in democracies, you know, in Western Europe, here in the US, um, that the way to combat this virus may end up being some sort of, you know, biosurveillance. Um, so perhaps we're all going to be tracked by our phones and that will help us figure out who's been in contact with whom and it will, you know, help us to track down cases of the coronavirus faster. And, you know, while that sort of sounds good from a medical point of view, it has serious civil liberties implications. Um, and so I, I worry um, that I think you're right that um, people are, are playing up this sort of autocracy versus democracy responding to the virus thing um, a bit too much. I don't think autocracies are necessarily dealing with it better, um, but it does seem like the lesson that we're taking is that that sort of mass surveillance is the only way we're going to actually deal with the virus. Yeah, and there's there's been work um, on kind of the technology side of this. I think that's outpacing um, the, the political process in terms of trying to balance that with privacy issues, civil liberties concerns. Um, uh, but um, you know, in, in a well-functioning democracy, right, we we can have those those debates and we can we can work through those processes. The problem is during an emergency, those deliberative processes get short-circuited, and we wind up with. Uh, policies that are not very, not necessarily very well considered and well balanced, um, and you know, I, I think that that's a definite risk, uh, you know, here and in other countries. And um, in addition, that these policies get entrenched over time, um, I, I think that's that's a real concern. So there there needs to be a balance here between biosurveillance uh, on the one hand um, and harnessing technology for that purpose, and making sure that these do not kind of tilt the, the long term. Uh, balance we have between, um, you know, personal privacy, corporate access to data, and you know, government authority. Yeah, we don't need a pandemic version of the of the Patriot Act in our in our panic. Um, all right, so let's turn to another happy topic: uh, bioterrorism. Um, you know, the conspiracies have been uh, thick on the ground. Um, everyone knows, you know, the United States actually developed coronavirus in secret as a plot, or maybe it was Bill Gates or. I've seen a lot of people talking about how China obviously was developing this as a biological weapon, but um, you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to imagine that this pandemic is giving ambitious terrorists uh, more crazy ideas. And Greg, you've studied this topic a lot. Do you, do you think the pandemic is going to have an impact on these groups and their thinking? I, I definitely think we're seeing uh, an impact already. Terrorist groups, just like states, are exploiting the pandemic to advance their own 
agendas. We've already seen signs of both far-right groups and jihadist groups using the pandemic to scapegoat people in groups they don't like. Um, so white, some white supremacist groups have even promoted the idea of targeting ethnic groups they don't like with the coronavirus to accelerate the uh, ethnic cleansing that's part of their agenda. But so far, there's no evidence that any group of individuals actually acted on these calls. Um, but you know, I, w- one of my concerns is that a lot of white right-wing groups in the U.S. have a long history of being kind of fascinated by biological weapons, but a poor track record in actually developing you know, a viable uh, biological weapon. And this pandemic is likely to only increase their interest uh, in doing so. Now, if they're smart, they'll stay away from something that's highly contagious like uh, the coronavirus, given the risk of blowback. But there are lots of other dangerous pathogens they could uh, select. So, you know, the concerns that this pandemic will prime groups that had kind of been thinking about this or had this back in mind, so we'll kind of make this more of a high priority. And that's something that I think we have to keep a very good, a very close eye on in, in the near future. Yeah. And and so just sort of, you know, pivoting off of that, I think, you know, th- for, for every group that's actually having a discussion about it, there's a lot of chaff and chatter on Twitter and other places, even the mainstream news media, about... Um, what these groups are up to and all sorts of people spreading all sorts of ideas about these things. And one of these groups spreading ideas appears to be Russia. Russia seems to be very busy, um, you know, sort of following up on their election interference with pandemic interference. I don't know what you'd call it, but spreading theories around the world via Twitter. And I guess other means that the United States is in fact behind this pandemic. Um, What do you make of this effort? And do you think this is something to worry about? So most of the disinformation coming out of uh, countries like Russia and China is really for public consumption. Um, they're using it to distract their own people and deflect blame for their own poor handling of the pandemic. Uh, but it does fit a track record, especially uh, with the Russians, of using controversial topics to stoke tensions and exploit pre-existing cleavages in our society. But honestly, I'm a lot less worried about this kind of disinformation coming from Russia and China than I am what's coming out of the White House and Fox News. Uh, Trump has played uh, just a completely toxic role uh, in during the pandemic by downplaying the risks posed by coronavirus, contradicting information provided by his own experts, and generally spreading misinformation. Uh, and that, I think, is doing much more damage to our ability to handle the uh, this pandemic than whatever the, the Russians and Chinese are, are putting out as their propaganda. I think that's exactly right. Um, and, and the other area where the White House, um, maybe not the White House itself, but certainly um, we've seen Republican senators do this spreading disinformation, um, is speculating about the idea that this was perhaps not a a natural disease, that this didn't progress from sort of animals to humans accidentally, but that it was some sort of, um, you know, weak or accidental release of a bioweapon from a Chinese lab. There's a bunch of crazy conspiracy theories out there on the internet. Um, and, you know, mainstream politicians here in the US um, are, are actually helping to sort of mainstream these ideas, um, bringing up the idea that China is responsible um, whether it's responsible because they created the disease, whether it's responsible because they just let it get out of control, and it all sort of bleeds together. I'm very worried about the narrative that this is forming. Yeah, I mean, this is just another example of um, you know leaders exploiting this crisis to serve their pre-existing interests, right? So um, politicians who are already kind of you know China hawks or anti-China are using this to beat up on China, um, and um, and doing so in a way that is, you know, misleading, given that, you know, the vast majority of evidence we have points to a, a natural, uh, a natural outbreak. 
And the real shame of this is that a you know it distracts us from uh, kind of you know dealing with the crisis uh, at hand and holding our own leaders accountable. Uh, but also, it's you know uh, it's playing a, a really um, detrimental role in, in U.S.-China relations. Uh, and you know there is a there's been a, a resurgence in talk about great power competition, right, especially between the U.S. and China. Uh, but what we what we need now is great power cooperation, right? We we have a much greater power that we're competing against, which is Mother Nature. And when the the U.S. and China and the other great powers compete with one another during a pandemic, the only winner are the viruses, and and that's just not a good situation to be in. Yeah, that's that, that's a, that's really an interesting sort of nexus there, which is you know the the, the information warfare, conspiracy theorizing, and, and and the politicization driving nationalism both in the U.S. and elsewhere. I mean, I think you see the EU struggling with nationalism. Uh, again and again, uh, the United States, you, you know, you have right wing leaders stoking nationalism by calling things the Chinese virus and other sort of crazy talk about uh, things. And and all of that is making cooperation harder. So, But but I, I but I wonder, you know, is this and you've seen a lot of hand wringing in foreign affairs and, and other journals about, you know, the pandemic is sort of a, a death knell for global cooperation because it's not looking very good right now. But Greg, as you just pointed out, you know, pandemics don't understand borders, and the only really way to deal with them is through cooperation. If you have to guess, is the pandemic going to hurt or boost international cooperation in the longer run? I mean, maybe trouble now, but do you see coming out of this, everyone sort of realizing, hey, we got to do something about this? I mean, in the long run, the the only viable um, option is for greater international cooperation, right? Um, Pathogens don't need passports. Right, they don't. They don't care about about borders, and given the nature of our global economy, right, every city in the world is twenty four hours away from every disease outbreak. So, um, you know, the answer is not to build higher walls and lock our doors. It's to work with other countries to ensure early detection and faster response to new outbreaks. And um, you know, that's something that can only be done uh, with you know um, uh, through cooperative means. And we need to be um, kind of rebuilding the foundations for some of these relationships uh, now, since we all have a shared interest um, in preventing the next outbreak from becoming a pandemic and, and doing what it's doing to, you know, to our society and, and the rest of the world. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think all this talk about great power competition uh, and trying to kind of, quote unquote, blame China for this outbreak uh, is really in our own long term, um, not in our self-interest at all. You know, I think it's also been kind of interesting to watch the politicking over the World Health Organization. Um, so obviously, this administration is really opposed to all international organizations to start with. Um, but there's been a lot of talk about whether the the WHO is, you know, are they now so dominated by China that they're they're listening to sort of Chinese falsehoods about coronavirus? And was that part of the problem that started this whole pandemic? Um, and it really seems like the trust in those international organizations that could facilitate cooperation seems to be much lower um, than it has been in the past. I mean, the WHO was in a tough spot because, um, you know, its authority is actually quite limited, right? They can't just fly into any country they want. Uh, right? It's not like the board game pandemic where you can deploy your, um, you know, your, your WHO SWAT team to go uh, take on uh, these outbreaks where anywhere in the world. Right. They can only operate in a country with that country's permission and assent uh, and are limited by what that country will will enable them to do. 
So the WHO does need to maintain good relations with China in order to ensure access to the hospitals and public health agencies and the data and the viral samples that they need to you know, develop medical countermeasures uh, to understand the, the disease and, and how it's progressing and, and what can be done about it. Um, and uh, to the extent that the WHO has, you know, it definitely has its, its faults and flaws. Um, but, um, you know, the answer is not to cut off funding, which is what uh, President Trump has, has threatened to do. Right, we are, you know, the leading donor to that uh, organization. So we should be taking a lead in, in, in instituting the reforms we think we need to, to see to, to make the organization more effective. Um, you know, and overall, I think the WHO has been a good voice for, um, you know, realistic risk assessments and, you know, advice to uh, national leaders and organizations and, and medical public health professionals. And, you know, they have played a, a tremendous role, much of it behind the scenes. Uh, in, in, in coordinating this international response. So, um, you know, I think we should pay less attention to some of the pandemic theater that we say politicians playing uh, and look more at what's actually happening on the ground and what are the results and, and what these organizations are, are actually doing and what are the benefits they're providing. Uh, so I, I think, you know, for sure, you know, mobilizing international institutions seems to be part of an eventual improvement in you know, the global response. That seems clearly like it, on the American side, it's going to have to wait for the next president after Trump uh, because he is, you know, poisonously opposed to most international institutions, it seems. Um, but but I sort of have two thoughts here. One is that, it, you know, people have been worrying about um, China looking good uh, and, and taking the opportunity, you know, not to waste the crisis um, to sort of you know, make... Um, moves, maybe uh, soft power, you know, health diplomacy sorts of things uh, worldwide. That seems, again, like maybe a narrative that hasn't lasted very well, number one. But on the other hand, I'm thinking, you know, long run, part of the problem with uh, cooperating with China and, you know, Trump's interesting because, Greg, as you point out, you know, there's a lot of theater on the surface about opposing China tariffs and so on. But the Trump, even the Trump administration has worked quietly with China cooperatively on things, even while doing the theater. But but with the health stuff, it seems like this is a real regime security risk for autocracies. Letting people in, letting the kind of visibility to the international community that you'd have to to allow to let to do like really good, you know, multinational biosurveillance and stuff. Don't don't you think that uh, certain governments are going to have a lot of trouble with greater cooperation on this stuff? I, I mean, certainly there, there's a spectrum of cooperation we've seen among countries. Um, and, you know, and, and certainly some regimes, um, have been particularly bad at handling this crisis because, uh, they don't want to show weakness, um, because you know, it, it threatens to undermine their legitimacy because, right, if, if they are not elected and, and they're going to only hold on to power through course of means or through, um, the promise of economic benefits or, or some other, um, tangible benefits, right, they're less able to deliver those with a pandemic that's shutting down economies. Um, and so, um, you know, I think the, what we've seen in Iran is a good example of this, where um, that regime's kind of obsession with domestic security and secrecy um, and the influence of, you know, kind of very hardline elements in the government has really kind of hurt their response to, to the pandemic um, tremendously. Um, so, um, you know, going back to our earlier discussion about kind of democracies versus autocracies, um, you know, democracy might be, uh, you know, might be the worst form of government, but compared to all the others, it's, you know, it's still the least bad one. 
Um, and, um, you know, and I think there's more long term hope for democracies to kind of adapt to um, the, the demands of, of the, uh, the, the pandemic and, and be able to kind of adopt better, better policies. Um, but I think this is going to, unfortunately, this is playing out in a way that, you know, all of the mistakes and errors that, that leaders make in, in both types of countries, right, people are paying for that with their lives. Uh, and that's really the, the tragedy that uh, this pandemic will not kind of probably preventable on, on the, the, the whole, you know, the, the entire thing, right? Many, many more lives could have been saved if we'd had, you know, earlier response, more coordinated international response, uh, more of a science-driven response. Um, we would have been in a much better position now than than we find ourselves in, and that's really the the, the tragedy and the shame um, of the situation. You know, I mean, I guess the the question that I have about that is, um, we we were obviously very unprepared. Um, to what extent is this the Trump administration, and and to what extent is this just that the U.S. government in general has been unprepared for this kind of threat? So on on the one hand, right. There were failures kind of at every level of preparedness at, at the international level, uh, among individual countries, within our federal interagency system, the intergovernmental system, at the state and local level, at the, at the local community level, right? There were, there were problems and, and weaknesses and, and failures for sure. Um, but I think a lot of those problems were magnified by the problems we have at, at the top in, in the White House uh, and the way the Trump administration has, in general, run the government um, in terms of being, you know, anti-science, uh, the nepotism and cronyism and patronage that's been involved, the personality-driven uh, decision-making process, the secrecy, uh, the lack of, of transparency and accountability, um, the, you know, inability to consistently tell the truth about important topics, right? All of these trends, which we've seen over the last several years, have all really created this perfect storm um, now that have, I think, kind of magnified whatever fault lines and, and problems we had in our system, you know, have just made those worse. Um, and I think, you know, it will be a challenge kind of teasing out what were some of the systemic and structural flaws um, that we had and what were some of the problems that Trump just inherited from previous administrations um, versus the, um, you know the, the problems with our response that that derive directly from uh, the way the Trump administration has you know handled policy in in general and public health and global health security in in, in particular. Um, but I, I unfortunately I think there's a lot of blame to go around. But I I do tend to put a lot of it up at up at the top in terms of of how how poorly our response has gone so far. All right. So to, to pivot from that, you know, this has been a a pretty bad pandemic as as they go, obviously. Uh, but it's clear that, you know, we're going to get another one, whether it's this bad, you know, or not. Uh, it, it's a risk that we have to take as very real. What I mean, a little early to say all the things before those reviews happen. But you know, broadly speaking, what does the United States need to do and what does it need to get the rest of the world to do to prepare for next time? Um. That's a great question. So I think there, there are three pillars for strengthening global health security that we need to be uh, pursuing. Uh, and it's not too early to start now, even though we're in the middle of the current pandemic, to start getting ready for the next one. Uh, the first is, is a much uh, stronger emphasis on biomedical research. We need to have a much better understanding of what these pathogens are and what they can do and, and the risks they pose. Uh, we need new technologies to develop drugs and vaccines faster. 
in order to deal with uh, a novel pathogen that we don't have any um, prior experience with. Um, so we definitely need a much stronger um, kind of scientific um, enterprise to um, try and mitigate these threats ahead of time. We also need to invest much more strongly and sustainably in public health emergency preparedness so we can detect outbreaks earlier and respond more quickly. Uh, to paraphrase the Harvard IR scholar Joseph Nye, a resilient public health system is like oxygen. You tend not to notice it until you begin to lose it, and then that's all you can think about. I don't want to be in a position in the future where all I have to do is think about how uh, uh, understaffed our public health system is, how unprepared our hospitals are. Um, right, This is the truly frightening experience now, and I don't think we ever want to be in a position to repeat it. So we need to make investments that are not one time, but are sustained over the next uh, years and, and decades to make sure that we're never caught this unprepared. And finally, going back to a theme we've talked about already, it's international cooperation. Um, cooperation among countries is key to responding to the current pandemic uh, and preparing for the next one. And, and again, I think we need to set aside this idea of great power competition uh, and look for how do we foster great power cooperation uh, in order to protect our mutual interests in ensuring uh, the, the health and prosperity of our countries. Because public, uh, public health is, is, is a, a global good. Um, and I think by now we've, I think most countries now realize that they can't, they can't free ride on that anymore, that we're all, you know, vulnerable and, and the weakest link in that global health security chain, uh, is, uh, can, can bring down everybody. So I think there is going to be, uh, it needs to be a much stronger emphasis on working with, with countries to bring them up to those higher standards of, um, public health, um, preparedness, um, which will be, which will be a, a heavy lift. But um, I think it's something that um, we're definitely seeing the need for, and uh, I'm hoping the political will will be there to to see this through for the next uh, next several years. Well, that's that's the last question I want to push you on before we sign off is your your forecast as to the likelihood that the United States is going to mount a significant um, response because you know in. To take 9-11 as an analogy, um, you know, the United States suffers a shock, many deaths, uh, fear that something like that will happen again and a desperate desire to prevent that. And then, you know, trillions of dollars are spent attempting to reduce that risk. I think the, the difference is obviously that as we talked about up front, public health is not seen as a security issue. And I think you know, we respond to security threats very differently from other kinds of threats. And it's not clear to me also that given that the military is a entirely federal, you know, government activity versus the healthcare system, which is a mixed bag, it's not clear that we're going to have the same clarity of focus and purpose and investment, frankly, uh, moving forward that we did after 9-11. If you had to say zero to 100, you're, you know, you're confident that the response is going to be enough, where, where would you be? I can only answer that question on November fourth, um, because again, I think I think I think leadership starts at at the top, and and that's what we need to see. But just to go back to your point about kind of nine eleven, uh, I think this is also indicative of the need to redefine what we think of as national security, um, because um, you know uh, what we've seen in New York City alone. New York City alone has suffered over seven thousand deaths, which is the equivalent to two nine elevens. Um, so if we think the primary purpose of national security is to protect our lives, liberty, and way of life, then this pandemic's the biggest national security threat we've seen in two decades. 
And, you know, as traumatic as 9-11 was, right, it only directly affected, um, you know, New York City and uh, the Pentagon and um, uh, the, the, the flights that were that were hijacked. Whereas this pandemic is affecting literally everyone in America for weeks and probably months to come. And I think that's going to create a much different sense of hopefully of unity uh, and of purpose uh, and of a willingness to make the kind of investments that we need to prevent this from ever happening again. Um, and you know, I don't want to, I don't like the analogies of, you know, declaring a war on something, but if, if ever any issue deserved the same uh, level of attention and resources and urgency and seriousness of mission that we devote to uh, wars with other countries, I would say um, combating, uh, you know, viral threats and epidemics uh, ranks up there as well. Well, that's an excellent way to put it and an excellent place to put an end on it. Uh, Greg, thanks for joining us today. And thanks to our producer, Cecil Sherman, and to everyone at home for listening. We appreciate your tolerance of our somewhat poor sound quality during this uh, pandemic. And if you'd like to engage with us online uh, from a socially appropriate distance, uh, check out our Twitter handle at PowerPop.